association of churches uh, nationwide called the Evangelical Free Church of America. And uh, Faith Church is part of the Pacific Northwest region of the EFCA. And so um, uh, I've asked Bruce Martin, our district superintendent, to come and open God's word with us this morning. And I'm excited for him to do that. Um, I'm new around here. I'm new to the Pacific Northwest. And uh, like all of you, lovingly and warmly welcoming me and my family, uh, I've been thankful for Bruce and our, the beginnings of our friendship and look forward to partnering with Bruce and the, the Evangelical Free Church of America for uh, years to come to Jesus' glory. So let's welcome up Bruce. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Good morning, Faith. Wow, what a good vibe. I, I let some people know what I was going to be talking about this morning, but I'm seriously questioning whether they got it early enough to be able to do what they did this morning. Like it's, it's like between the worship stuff that we did and this, this troop of CASA volunteers, holy cow, just knocked the ball out of the park. It's easy for me to talk about what I want to talk about this morning because of that. My name is Bruce. 20 years ago, 23 years ago, I planted a church in Eugene, um, pastored it for those years, um, have a wife of 38 years, and, and let me not polish this thing unnecessarily at all, that our marriage has survived as one of God's miracles. And I kid you not, I mean, it's uh, the things that I want to talk with you about this morning begin to be real in my life at the point of, of Heather and I uh, looking at our lives about 21 years into the journey of marriage and seeing each other through eyes that were frightening. Like neither one of us saw what the possibility of continuance would look like. It was, it was hard on every front. There was no blue sky it was, it was hard, right? Um, the things that I had invested in, the church, my family, my reputation in the community of Eugene, my, my reputation and, and relationships with extended family, all of that got called into question in really severe ways. And so when Derek talked about the heart of father for the least of these, like, my discovery was this. As I look back over my life, I discovered a part of Bruce that thought God had made a pretty good choice in choosing me, in the things that I had accomplished, in the things I had pulled off, in the goals that I had for my life, which came from his word. But when I was on the other side of that deal, and everything that I had touched and invested in was a pile of ashes, it caused me to crunch the numbers in a really different way. And when I asked and answered the question, does God love me? It was from the posture of the least of these. And in my life, though I wouldn't wish the circumstances on you, I deeply desire the outcome for you. Because the freedom that is delivered, the new start on life that this has framed for me, 
the understanding of life in Jesus that I want to share with you this morning, the, the continuity of God's goodness expressed in so many ways has been the thing that has given my life a meaning and a story to share. My heart as a leader in the Pacific Northwest District is simply this, to help our pastors and leaders and our congregation become increasingly effective in sharing life in Jesus. Not with people who just walk in the door, although that's important, and I was smothered by friendliness this morning. I mean, it was awesome. It was awesome. Man, I had one dear gal just pray over me, and I thought, holy cow, I think I've come off the ground six inches this morning. What a great gift. But the kind of thing that I'm talking about in a culture where increasingly people are staying away from the church by the droves is to help people understand and gain confidence and gain ability to interact with folks around the way of Jesus in their homes, in their communities, in their places of work, where they gather to recreate everything, which is consistent with the way of Jesus. He said in Matthew chapter 28, his last words, and you know, last words are lasting words, carefully chosen. Just go into the world and make disciples. And you know, the focus isn't on the word go. The focus is on make disciples. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is like, I assume you're going somewhere. As you go, impart the spirituality that you've learned from me with others that you're rubbing shoulders with. As you go, as you go, we're in a major corrective in our culture where we've, most of us, have lived for so long in a kind of a different paradigm where we expect people to come to us. But I need to say as one who, you know, I work with 50 plus churches in our district and I I sit with 16 other guys that do what I do in this denomination, and I rub shoulders with a lot of leaders and other clans, and everybody is noticing the same thing, folks. And that is that most growth that people are celebrating is the kind of growth where people come from church A to church B. Right? And so my heart is to say, how can we well, I could put it crassly, I guess. How can we sneeze on people such that they get the virus of Jesus from us? How could that happen? How can we recover that? Is it possible to recover that? And so that's my heart is to just talk about that this morning because this whole matter of making disciples, frankly, if we pull the educational component out of that, that the, the the, the right handling of the Word of God, the reading and reading and reading of these secondary books about how to, how to reach people. Or how, if we pull the educational element out of it, then we almost have nothing to say about who a disciple is. 
And I like the cookies on the bottom shelf. That's just who I am. I, you know, Einstein said, man, if you can't explain something simply, you probably don't understand it. I'd like to go back to some of my seminary professors with that word. I, are you, what? What? Look, a disciple in the simplest of terms, okay, not rocket science, not hard to grasp. A disciple is somebody who lives like Jesus, who loves like Jesus, and who leaves behind in his or her life the things that Jesus left behind in his life. And Jesus is the center of this conversation. He said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if Jesus is the way, then I think it's important that we maybe look at that from new eyes. That maybe we look at this as though we're coming to it again for the first time. That word way is a metaphor. Who knows what a metaphor is? Somebody who's dusted off the cranium of years and years and years of being absent from your high school literature or English class, what is a metaphor? Shout it out. Look, a metaphor is a simple concept that carries a much broader definition. If I were to say to you this morning, Derek is a rock, I'm not insulting him. I'm not saying he's stubborn as a rock. I'm not saying he's dumb as a rock. I'm saying he's a rock. His leadership is strong. His vision is strong. He's unflappable. He's determined to do what God has laid on his heart to do, and his leadership skills are up to the task to invite others to do that. That's all that's contained in that word rock. When I say Derek is a rock, and so I wonder maybe if we have not grabbed this metaphor that Jesus is using, the word way, and used it in a very narrow manner. I wonder if we've used it in a reductionary kind of way. If I, if I were to say to you, marriage, it's just two people sharing life under one roof. Is that true? On one level, it's true. But it's a lot more. How many of you are married? Is it a lot more? It's a lot more. It's foolish to be overly reductionary about a concept and live into it without the fullness of what it is that it brings to our understanding. If I were to tell you the way to Eugene... Right? The way is a metaphor. Well, you go out here to Rick Real Road and you hang a left and, and then you, you take you know, Pacific Highway over 99 West. You head south on 99 West through Corvallis and through Mon well, Monmouth, Corvallis, Monroe, Junction City, and then you get to the sign that says, Welcome to Eugene. Is that the way to Eugene? Does that satisfy the word way? What if I... 
What if I am training my 16 or 17-year-old son or daughter in terms of how to drive a vehicle? Folks, I will probably assume that they can read a map or follow a GPS. If I'm having that conversation with my son or my daughter, I said things like, you know, when you're out on the highway, even though the sign says 55 miles an hour, if the conditions aren't good, if traffic is heavy, if rain is coming down in buckets or there's ice on the road, don't drive 55. Drive according to the conditions. Hey, don't tailgate. You know, like give yourself plenty of time to stop between you and the car in front of you. Right, and I just saw a couple of glances in the room. Guys were like, see, like he said. And and how about this? Don't text. Don't text. Don't look at your emails. Keep your eyes on the road. Now look, if two and a half or three hours later I'm looking at my watch and the car's not in the driveway and I get a call from my kid and, and she says, oh, Dad, I don't know what happened, man. The sign says, welcome to Newport. <laughs> what is the first thing I'm going to ask as her father? Are you okay? I'm not going to say, are you an idiot? Can't you read a map? I raised you better than this. I am going to say, are you okay? Because as her father, that is the most pressing thing on my heart. I know she'll find her way home. If I reduce what Jesus has said, then I don't grasp what Jesus meant. In fact, it's possible to know all about Jesus, all about scriptures, all about the stories from the Old Testament and the New, but miss the way. That's what Jesus said to some of his contemporaries. He said, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. But these are the scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Way is a metaphor for something. For the fullness of what Jesus intends. And I fear, I'm concerned that we've centered down on just one part of the description of that at the expense of all that Jesus has said. For most of us, when we look at a John 14, 6 verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Immediately what comes into our mind is that God is perfect and holy, and human beings are sinners, and holiness and sin cannot abide. So God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for my sin and yours so that I might be forgiven, so that I could be with my Father forever in heaven. Is that true? 
Church, is that true? Is that true? Is that true? All right, it is true. It is true. But what if Jesus is saying, the road to heaven is more than believing a set of facts? What if Jesus, in using this metaphor way, is saying, when you live like me, manner of life, doing the things I do, treating people the way I treat them, disconnecting your heart from living for this present age, when you embrace this new way of living as a human being, then a part of the benefit for you is that you will discover fullness of life now. Now. And you will be with me forever in eternity. Jesus spells out more fully what it is to be a disciple in Matthew chapter 22 verses 37 through 40, and that's what I want to focus on for the remaining minutes this morning. The setting is this, a, a, a fellow who was an antagonist, who saw what Jesus was doing and saying and saw that it was ruining his game, his power game, came to Jesus with a question intended to entrap Jesus. That was his heart. Matthew tells us that. And he said to Jesus, what is the most important command? And Jesus said what? What did he say, church? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it. That's important to understand what he's saying. It doesn't stand alone. It's drawn out from it, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like drawn out from that. Two sides of the same coin. If you take part of that image away, you don't have the coin anymore. The second is drawn out from it, which is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Now here is a startling word that Jesus offers at the end of that. Hey, this is utter simplicity. He says, and this is Bruce's paraphrase, the fullness of God's revelation is completely fulfilled in the life of a man or a woman who loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loves his neighbor as himself. Isn't that interesting? It's not complicated. It's not hard to understand. It's incredibly costly. All it costs you is your heart and your life and your way of doing life and the affections that this world invites you to embrace. Okay? Utter simplicity. Jesus says, if you are a man or a woman who loves the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loves your neighbor as yourself, then you have fulfilled God's revelation. All of the law and prophets, he says, hang on that. Right? Okay, so on a human level, I understand a little bit about how to love somebody. On the horizontal level, the way I love somebody is I 
pay attention to what they say to me about themselves. And through my behavior, through my words, through my presence, I try to validate that and I, I try to help them find lift, right? To be the best versions of themselves I can be. They can be. That's a good definition of love. It's a way of definition of love that Jesus lays out for us, right? Now, if you're a young man or a young woman and you're 20-something years old or whatever, and you're just looking at getting married to somebody and you say, man, I think I found the right person for me. There's a good starting point. The raw material is really good. I see some things in him or her that are going to have to change in order to make my life more of what I hope it will be. Have you ever known anybody like that? Have you ever been anybody like that? Like, I encourage you, if you are in the face of that kind of an individual who's defining love in that way, run away. That is not love. Okay, I get that on the human level. How does that work on the vertical? Be because here's, here's where I get wrapped around the axle a little bit. If I can make God more God by loving Him better, or... If I can make God less God by withholding my love from Him, then by my understanding, He's not God. The way God reveals Himself is completely self-sufficient, having existed in a delighted way for all eternity. Blows my mind. He does not need me to fulfill him. He does not need me to make him better. He does not need my worship to have a good day. He doesn't need my money so that he can be happier as God. He doesn't need my obedience so that he can be more fully God. What does it mean to love God? Listen, it's the same thing that we discovered on the horizontal. First of all, listen to the way the being reveals himself. Right? What's the word that Jesus uses again and again and again and again in Scripture as he talks about God with people in his generation? What is the noun that he uses? Think of it. Lord's Prayer. Father. So many stories that he told. Right? So many stories that he told. He kept bringing it in and bringing it in. And you're going like, Jesus, come on. They get it. No, they don't get it. And he tells stories. You know, when a, when a son asks his father for a, a loaf of bread, dad doesn't give him a rock, does he? When a son asks for a fish, dad doesn't give him a snake, dot, dot, dot. How much more your father in heaven? If a father on the earth loves his kid in this way, how much more your father in heaven? Because it's hard for us to live into 
this life as a child of the Father. I have found that though we understand the terms I'm talking about experientially an awful lot of the community that identifies as Christian, including leaders, live as orphans. Always anxious. Always driven to accomplish, to achieve. To have that validation that comes from what we do instead of who we are. I know when I'm in the presence of somebody who lives like a dearly loved child of God. There's peace. There's gratitude. There's love. There's attentiveness. You know, I, as, as I've done life, it's kind of a marvelous thing to me that any of us can imagine a, a father like this. As a dad... I've made a lot of well-intentioned promises. Sometimes I didn't do as good a job of keeping the promises that I wanted to make. Sometimes I forgot. You know, my 32-year-old daughter were here this morning. She would gladly tell you again, can't seem to tire of it, of the day her daddy left her at a playground after one of her older brother's kids sport baseball games and totally forgot she was there. Yeah, it wasn't a happy day. Sometimes there were conflicts. I'd made commitments that I didn't, and I can't be everywhere at once. Sometimes if I'm honest, I was just tired. And I didn't want to deliver. But as we sang this morning, that song that we started off with, man, it just makes me weak in my knees when I understand the impact of those words. You're a good, good father. And I am loved by you. That's who I am. That's who I am. Best picture I can carry for you this morning, folks, is uh, just a memory from when I was a dad of little kids. I think my oldest was five and three. No, it would have been six and four and two. Maybe seven, five and three. Anyway, here's what the deal. Heather left town for a long weekend. And things descended into utter chaos really rapidly, as they were prone to do, right? Because, like, that's just what happened. So I I decided I'm going to play this game with the kids, and I'm going to say, I'm going to stand right here behind you, and, and I want you to put your hands on your shoulders just like this. And I'm, I'm going to hold my hands out to you, and, and on the count of three, I want you to, to fall back into my arms. Easy concept to grasp? Yeah. I said, here's the deal. If you look over your shoulder, if you take a step back, I will not be there for you. I will step back, and I will let you hit the floor. Sure you will, Dad. My oldest son, a hey, piece of cake, Dad, I got it. He put his arms out here, and, and every time he leaned back, he just caught himself a little bit with his foot. I said, Joel, you're going down, man. I'm not going to catch you. You've got to fall. Couldn't do it. My middle son says, get out of the way, Joel. Let me do this. 
And he was like there, and it was like his little feet were, were nailed to the ground. He was not going to move them, but he was like the wise old owl, man. I thought he was going to give himself whiplash, just looking around, make sure the dad was there. And, and he was just giggling hysterically with the impossibility of doing the simple thing that I had asked him to do. Finally, his little sister got in there. And, and like she's three. She probably hadn't lived enough life to understand the wickedness that resided in her daddy's heart. And she, she just put her, put her feet there and, and easily put her arms on her shoulder and she just fell back and I caught her. And her brothers were like stunned. But you know what happened after that? That's when chaos went crazy, right? Because then my oldest is standing on the coffee table and saying, okay, Dad, I'm ready, catch me. And, and my middle one, he runs into the kitchen and he jumps up on the, on the Formica countertop and we had tile on the floor at the time. And, and I said, Jeff, if I don't catch you, dude, your head's going to be like a watermelon when it hits that ground. Ah, you'll catch me, Dad. And he just leans back and says, what had happened? They saw. See, this is the sneezeability of faith. When people see the Father you have, it causes them to reflect on the possibility of the discovery of a Father that is just like that. And I say to you this morning, when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, what he is saying to you and what he is saying to me is trust, Father. Take inventory of the things around which you feel anxiety. And you say, Father, I don't know a lot but you say you've got my back. I'll trust you. Folks, that spirit is conspicuous in its absence in the culture of belief as Christians in the way that we've learned in Western spirituality. And the thing that is awful to me is that we are living with neurotic anxiety. There are some of us who are followers of Jesus in these times who are running around in circles saying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. No, it's not. No, it's not. My father, he doesn't know frustration. He doesn't know what it means to feel anxious. He's only faithful to every child who looks to Him and calls upon Him. When Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, He's saying, trust, Father. And the reason why Jesus had to teach this over and over and over and over and over again is because you and I find it so hard to believe Him. And I suspect that at least some of the struggle 
is that maybe some of us have to be circling and waiting for the thing that I experienced. That moment when everything's in a free fall and you don't know a lot except you know that everything you've tried has not worked. And you just say, help me, Father. Just give you a few thoughts here as I wrap up this morning. Real simple. Um, It's good to praise God like we did this morning. But my word to you is to anchor your praise of God in your stories. See, when I watch Derek talk to you about CASA, and I see how deeply touched he is by that, that moves me. Right? When he stands up as a leader bringing influence to the church and he says, Casa may not be your deal, but something is your deal. Get after it. See, when we are doing things like that, it gives us opportunities to say, when I step out, God is faithful. And when you have those moments in life, Don't let them pass. When I say anchor your praise within your story, I'm saying learn to recognize God's faithfulness in your life and attach it to your story. I say to people sometimes, not disrespectfully, but the most most powerful apologetic for Jesus in my life is the gospel according to Bruce. It's the story of how God has been faithful to me. And it speaks volumes to people who know me. Second thing I would say is live in the moment. Man, this is so counter to us. We're always borrowing worries against the future. No, live in the moment right now. Is it okay today? Do you have a pulse? Are you living? Are you breathing? Are things manageable today? Fine. Then let it be that. Just let it be that. Just today. Just for now. In my selfishness, I wish God would amass his faithfulness into a great big pile and put it way in front of me so that I could see ahead of time the way he's going to meet my needs as I encountered them. But doggone it, he just doesn't work that way. So I live in the moment. And I would say lastly, correct your narrative if it needs correcting. A lot of us can talk about the struggles and the disappointments, and the betrayals, and the hardships, which is fine. I don't recommend denial, but don't let those things be the final word. Let the final word be that I am a dearly loved child of God, and I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know He does. And I know that's enough for me. Charles Spurgeon, the man, interesting guy, really powerful preacher in London back in the day. I've come to find out he just struggled like almost uh, paralyzingly with depression. <laughs> you don't think about that as a guy who thunders the Word of God and has such a massive impact on the generations. 
that he was a man who walked with a limp. But he said this, a sound bite that I, I just heard a few years ago and it just stayed with me. He says, though I, though I cannot trace God's hands, I can trust his heart. And that's all I want to say to you this morning. I'm going to turn it over to Derek. Thank you. Thanks, brother. Let me invite you to stand, and the band can come back up here as we uh, get ready to worship and share in the Lord's Supper together.